This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, creators of the annual Brewers Retreat. To brew on the main coast June 9th through 12th with legends like Vinny Salerzo of Russian River, get tickets now at brewersretreat.com. Welcome to the Craft Beer Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, co-founder and editorial director of Craft Beer Brewing Magazine, Jamie Bogner. My guests on the podcast today are Kristen and Ryan Scott of Odd 13 Brewing in Lafayette, Colorado. Welcome, Ryan and Kristen. Thank you very much for having us. Howdy. Of course, of course. We're going to get to a conversation here in a second, but first... G&D Chillers is the industry's premier choice for glycol chilling and sets the standard on quality, service, and dedication to their customers' craft. For 25 years, G&D has led the way on custom innovative solutions that match brewing customers' immediate and future needs. Thinking outside the box, whether it's a simple relocation of a utility connection for a complex buildup or ground-level design and engineering, G&D is ready to meet the challenge. Contact G&D Chillers today for your chiller sizing needs at 1-800-555-0973 or reach out online at gdchillers.com. Also, Hopsteiner is a sixth-generation global hop supplier dedicated to delivering the finest hops and hops products available. As a vertically integrated hop supplier, Hopsteiner advances the industry as one of the foremost international growing, breeding, trading, and processing firms in the world. Hopsteiner ships hops globally and partners with breweries of all sizes, offering unique hops varieties and innovative hop products designed to enhance flavor, aroma, consistency, and flexibility for brewing and beyond. Learn more at hopsteiner.com. Cool. Welcome to the podcast, Kristen Ryan. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Before we also, before we get started, I, I uh, want to mention for anybody who uh, out there is listening and had any intention of buying a ticket to our uh, Brewers Retreat up in Maine in June, uh, there's two tickets left. So hop on that as soon as you can. Uh, we expect it to sell in the next day or two. Um, let's talk about uh, brewing with Odd 13, Ryan and Kristen. Happy uh, to do that. You know, I was I was looking through things because I, I had a stat in mind, and, and one of the one of my stats is that, uh, and I track all the beers that I consume on Untapped, not to rate them because I don't do that, but uh, just to keep track. Uh, when I do best of for the year, it's great to go back through, download that database, look through the two thousand beers. Um, Odd Thirteen's codename Superfan has the honor of being the second most checked in beer by me. So of all the beers that I drink. I have drunk Codename Superfan more than every other beer but one. Appreciate that. Uh, so what is the one? Oh, we can't talk about that today. <laughs> We've that? already had a podcast with them. Let's not make it about that. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. Yeah, I appreciate that. That's um, you know our flagship beer. It's what we brew the most of. Um, and it was actually the, uh, the first hazy IPA brewed in Colorado. Um, that beer. That might be the reason that uh, I have yeah. drunk it in the most. Yeah, that beer um, has been you know largely unchanged in terms of recipe since um, early 2016. Uh, we started brewing it in October of 2015. So um, it, it originally started out as a uh, mistake by one of our brewers. Um, the very first batch of it got dumped. He was um, dosing the, the the bright tank with some some acid to just adjust the um, you know, the, the the dryness of the mouthfeel and uh, misplaced a decimal point. So uh, the uh, the very first batch of Codename Supervan was a uh, sour IPA that uh, ended up <laughs> down the drain, uh, but uh, I saw enough promise in it that I let him do it again. So 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 tell me about Codename Superfan and how the idea to brew that kind of beer came about, what you were inspired by, and uh, how you decided to make a beer like that uh, something that was your own. Because uh, the way that you make it is not necessarily 
uh, a copy of anybody else out there. It's very much, you know, specifically your beer. Um, and as you say, you've kept it that, that kind of, with that same kind of focus since, and I think there was a yeast change somewhere along the way, if I'm not mistaken, but, um, yeah, I mean, so we switched, uh, at one point we did switch yeast, um, vendors. It is allegedly the same strain from a, from a different vendor. Yeah. Um, don't want to get too yeah. far down that road. Okay. Um, okay for legal reasons but uh <laughs> tell me about the uh you know the inspiration uh and uh how you how you uh, uh you know kind of uh, ideated you know a beer and then went about uh you know kind of bringing that idea into fruition yeah absolutely um so the the genesis of the idea was our head taproom brewer at the time he was our head brewer our only head brewer at the time um his name is brandon he is from the east coast and he went on a bachelor party in vermont and as part of the bachelor party, they uh, they ended up at Hill Farmstead, and he was kind of inspired by the types of, of hoppy beers that they were doing, not specifically just their IPAs, you know, their parallels and everything as well. And um, you know, came back and asked me if he could pilot it through the tap room, and that was the um, the aforementioned sour uh, sour hazy IPA batch. Uh, I think we were just you know ahead of the game on that one. Yeah. But um, <laughs> there, you know, some people that's all the rage these days. But um, if only if only you kept with that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, uh, he you know, he piloted it um, prior to that. We were you know, very much more of like a traditional West Coast type brewery in yeah. terms of our hop focus. Um, you know, we were uh, known for a you know, red IPA called Eric the Red and a West Coast double called Papa Salinas. And, um, you know, I tried the beer. I saw the promise in it. And, you know, from there, I, I, I just knew that this was going to take off. This, like I said, this was, you know, 2015. So the real, you know, the bulk of the haze craze hadn't really hit yet. Sure, sure. Um, and it's so, weird to think about yeah. like this entire era of hazy beer, hazy IPA that we're, you know, experiencing really got started in the East Coast 2012, 2013, and then, you know, hit the rest of the country right around mid 2015. Um, yeah. That's less than four years ago. Yeah. Um, you know, so we um, started looking at hop contracts and yeah. you know, what we were had contracted for the next few years and what we could make fit into the beer. And um, the very first batch that we brewed was a uh, you know blank can with a uh, hand applied sticker that said this is a test. It was um, you know all of our, our branding is superhero themed, and the uh, the picture on the can was uh, me opening up a dress shirt with like an old school television test pattern underneath where like the Superman logo would be. And it said very clearly on the bottom of the can, this is a test. We ended up going through, um, I think, four test iterations before we kind of settled on a, a final um, version of the beer. Um, and we swapped a few hop varieties in, swapped a few out, um, upped the bitterness, lowered I the bitterness. Those. Yeah. I think I had uh, two and four before it uh, kind of became a, a final beer. Yeah. And then, you know, messed with the quantities a little bit and, yeah. um, you know, settled on, you know, something pretty close to what we have now. Uh, we eventually did later on in I don't know early to mid 2016 drop out one of the four original hops uh, before we settled on what we have now, which is Citrus, Simcoe, and Equinot. Um, it originally also had Amarillo. So. Mm. Why uh, why the change? I didn't feel like the Amarillo that we had access to at the time was adding the things I wanted to the beer. Okay, um, I was just getting a. I don't know. It was, you know, uh, we were not heavily contracted on Amarillo at the time. And so we were getting a lot of off of spot and I was noticing a lot of inconsistency in the quality. Yep. Um, since then we do use Amarillo in some beers and we've hand selected it at hop selection. But back then I, I just wasn't pleased with what we were getting from it. Sure. So um, we pulled it out and replaced it with more Citra at the time. Um, 
I, I found the the lots of citra that we were getting at the time to be a lot less variable. Hmm. Um, like I said, now we're we're everything that we're brewing with in a given crop year for our major hops it comes from the same lot, and it's something that we fly out to Yakima to hand select each year. So um, I think that has helped stabilize the beer quite a bit. So you know, I talk about that with brewers, you know, quite a bit. Where how do you value that? Uh, you know, the the variability in that kind of crop year. I mean, beer is an agricultural product as its core, uh, at its core. Um, you know, those agric- that agriculture changes from year to year as much as, you know, some folks might want to, you know, control all of the parameters around that. Uh, you know, I think it's actually kind of a beautiful thing that there is some, uh, you know, variance with those ingredients. Um, you know, but how, you know, for you as a, as a brewer who's also trying to create a product that has some consistency for an end consumer, like how do you, uh, you know, weight that I really like this, you know, this year's crop, it's going to taste a little bit differently, you know, but that's going to be a, a bonus for this beer versus that drive to kind of, you know, um, you know, push out the inconsistencies. Yeah. I mean, I think for our core beers, um, you know, like I mentioned, codename is Citrus, Simcoe and Equinot. Um, our other, you know, most commonly brewed beer is called Noob. It's our, our pale ale, it's Mosaic and Eldorado. Um, for those five hops, we're really, really focusing on trying to select for similar characteristics year over year. And for the other hops that we have contracted, um, we're selecting for whatever's most interesting, um, yeah. You know, we're, we're not as concerned with consistency in those. Um, we have a lot of Centennial this year that we are just dying to figure out to, what to do with it. Um, it's uh, got a really interesting berry character that is, you know, not typically super present mm. in Centennial. But um, we haven't exactly figured where we're going to use that yet. Uh, you know, probably for a taproom only batch, um, you know, maybe for something else later on in the year. Um, but it's, you know... F- Mainly, we're selecting for consistency amongst those, you know, those five or six hops that we use the most yeah. of. When you, uh, you know, when you all set out to create Codename Superfan, um, you know, did you have uh, a specific design goal in mind, or you know, did you let those kind of ingredients, um, you know, kind of guide you along? You know, was it this iterative process, or did you have some idea that you were trying to reach that you then kind of brewed towards on these iterative batches? You know, um, it was kind of brewed. Uh, to, you know, a combination of what we were, you know, seeing in some of the East Coast beers and uh, our own personal tastes, right? The end goal of the beer was, you know, was to be something that, um, you know, was was a little more full-bodied than you would see out of a typical West Coast IPA that was popular at the time, while still, you know, maintaining, you know, a low enough residual gravity that you were ending up with something that you could drink several of without feeling full. We definitely make those beers now, <laughs> but that's not what Codename was set out to be, right? Um you know, a lot of New England style IPAs or hazy IPAs are, you know, big, thick, chewy. Right. Um, our year-round double IPA, Intergalactic Juice Hunter, definitely fits into that category. Codename was aimed at, you know, hitting that, um, you know, six and a half ABV, um, relatively low IBU, and you know, just enough body to, you know, to have a good mouth Where feel while still being finish? crushable. Um, finishes, uh, we still deal in specific gravity okay. uh, rather than Play-Doh, so it finishes about uh, ten, twelve. Okay. Yeah. So, um, yeah, six and a half. ABV, uh, 10, 12 finishing gravity. Um, we measure IBUs at, um, we like it to be around 45. Um, we've actually switched uh, some of our hot products over the past few years to cryo pellets. And we actually see a slightly higher utilization um, hmm. from the cryo pellets than we did from uh, T90s. Um, so we're, we're actually experimenting with uh, lowering whirlpool temp to um, reduce the amount of extraction of IBU we're getting out of the whirlpool. Why do you think that is? You're using the you're using the pellets, not not powder, right? Yeah, so there it's it's pelletized powder. Right. Um, it, you know, it just basically dissolves into sure, mush as soon sure. as it goes into the whirlpool. Um, 
my guess is just that less of the the actual um, pellet is is made up of plant matter, and um, you know, because of the fact that it's just just the pure lupulin powder, sure, sure. it's it's just more. Um, you know, more surface area exposed, less of it hidden in the plant matter. But you're saying even after you adjust, you know, for the, the yeah. you know, two to one kind of difference in, you know, the guideline yeah. effectiveness that you're still seeing additional um, uh, efficiency over and above that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I don't know that, you know, this has been particularly yeah. widely studied, but right. um, we've, we've definitely done the analysis. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, we've, we've seen actually about a 10 IBU jump. Oh, um, okay. It, that beer doesn't see any hops until the Whirlpool. There's no bittering addition. Um there really hasn't been since like test batch one, maybe two. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think we went with a fairly significant bittering addition on test one, cut it considerably in, in test batch two and uh, eliminated it yeah. <laughs> starting with test batch three. Sure, so sure. Um, I think the original cans, you know, said 80 IBU or something along those lines. And like I said, it, you know, it measures out at around 45 these days uh, when we have it exactly where we want it. Where, uh, what temperature do you whirlpool at or does that vary? So, you know, we're a mile above sea level. Our boiling temp yeah. is about 204. Um, we, our process for that, what we've kind of taken to recently is uh, normally we would do about a 20-minute whirlpool um, and then 20-minute uh, rest prior to running off. Um, we, instead of adding the, uh, the pellets at the beginning of the whirlpool, we're, we're waiting until about five minutes in at this point um, to, to add them to let that temp drop. Um, I would need to look at a brew sheet to tell you exactly what temp yeah. we're getting to, but it's, it's probably in the mid one nineties. Okay. Um, you know, have you played around with, uh, various temperatures for, uh, for that whirlpool in order to achieve different goals or, uh, does that stay pretty consistent for you? It's pretty consistent. We're not actively cooling the whirlpool. We're just yeah. relying on the, yeah. um, you know, the, the heat transfer through the right. pump and, and cutting off the boil to, you know, to get down to the temp. Cooling whirlpool is no fun at all. But no, yeah. no, it, I mean, it's something you could easily do at the homebrew scale and, yeah. um, I would encourage people to do it at the homebrew scale, just screw around with it because that's what's fun about sure, homebrewing. Sure. Um, not super valuable uh, on our scale without some, you know, some dedicated hardware. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about dry hopping. I mean, obviously, this is a big thing for you all that, uh, you know, having so much focus on hazy hops forward beers means that you all are doing a shitload of dry hopping on yep. your beers. You know, you are putting a whole lot of hops uh, into some very big tanks. You're brewing on a 30 barrel, uh, you know, brew house and you're putting, you know, double batching into 60 barrel tanks. And that becomes uh, a yeah. whole lot of hops in a, in a lot of these hazy beers. Um, you know, uh, the, the process really starts to matter and small changes and that can have huge impacts in your beer. Talk to me a little bit about how your dry hopping has evolved over time and what you guys have learned uh, through that process of, uh, you know, trial and error. Yeah. So, I mean, when we first started canning, we were still brewing on our 10 barrel system in the tap room and, you know, uh, into 20 barrel tanks to can off of, you know, it's not even a very tall ladder to climb to the top of a 20 barrel tank. And on a 20 barrel tank, it's, you know, one or two buckets of hops. It's not, yeah, uh, yeah. um, nothing too crazy. When you start dealing with 60 barrel tanks, like we have at the production facility, it's, you know, you're 16 feet in the air and, um, standing on a rickety ladder. It's, um, I'm afraid of heights. I, I dry hopped here, uh, on the ladder exactly once. So, <laughs> uh, other people do that, uh, for me now. Um, once we, uh, expanded in the production facility to a second unit, we ended up getting a, uh, hop circulation unit from, from Rolex. Uh, Rolex DH90. They come in multiple sizes. Yeah. Um, I think the 90 is in reference to uh, the number of pounds of hops it can hold or something along those yeah. lines. But um, basically what that is, is it's a small conical vessel that um, has a pump attached to it. The pump is a shear pump, which means that it'll, it'll basically grind things. Um, you can throw all sorts of crap in there and, and it'll 
uh, grind and recirculate. But the beauty of this vessel is um, you know, it's, it's completely sanitary. We're not opening the tank to the outside environment. Um, we don't have to climb up on top of the vessel. And we can CO2 purge the thing, right? So you you know you set up block and bleeds at, at, at the sides, purge the the uh, the conical portion, purge the hoses, and you know it's um, right. you know heat sanitize it is you know the typical process. Um, purge it, load the hops in, purge again, and then uh, you got to maintain a pressure differential between the the circulation unit and the tank. Uh, but as long as you maintain that, basically um, beer flows across underneath the conical. And the pressure inside the conical pushes pellets down into the beer, which the pellets are then shredded by the uh, the shear pump and then circulated through the tank. So we can dry hop a sixty barrel tank, um, you know, two pounds per barrel easily um, in about two hours. Um, so then that's moving the hops matter into the actual you know prime uh, main fermenter and yeah. not just leaving it in a tank and circulating beer through. It's it's Correct. shearing and pushing. Yeah, it's not like a, okay. you know, if anybody's familiar with the torpedo process from yeah. Sierra Nevada, this is not that. Yeah, yeah. Um, it is turning over the entire volume of the tank through the pump hmm. uh, twice within a two-hour period. And um, we find really, really excellent hop extraction. Um, you just don't want to touch the beer for a day or so after it's been dry hopped. It is uh, just the strongest hop polyphenol burn you'll ever experience. Let's talk about that in a second. Uh, you know, but first, I uh, want to acknowledge a couple more of our sponsors. Everyone listening to this podcast knows the great beers are made from select ingredients. And with BSG, you'll bring the world to your brew house with an unparalleled and diverse selection of ingredients from across the globe to just down the road. Their dedicated customer service team and industry experience provides you with the assistance you need every step of the way. Let BSG be your supplier of choice for products essential to making great artisanal beverages so you can stay focused on your craft. For more information, visit them at bsgcraftbrewing.com or contact them at 1-800-374-2739. Also... This episode is brought to you by the Craft Brewers Conference and Brew Expo America, America's largest craft brewing industry gathering. Join your peers April 8th through 11th in Denver. Details at craftbrewersconference.com. Uh, that was a fantastic segue for you to pour me another beer. I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, give us a little time to uh, you know, to regroup here. For sure, for sure. And so, you know, we're, uh, you mentioned the polyphenol hops burn that came out of, uh, you know, from that dry hopping process. Uh, you know, that's something that brewers across the country and home brewers as well are trying to, you know, kind of wrap their heads around uh, a problem that everyone's trying to solve for because as tastes shift towards more and more, you know, intense hops flavors, uh, and we start talking about hops, dry hopping loads, not in uh, one pound, uh, you know, numbers, but 10 pounds or sometimes more, uh, you know, as things get absolutely absurd. How, uh, um, you know, you've gone through some of that yourself. You know, there was a, a phase where, uh, you know, those where odd 13 beers, uh, hoppy beers had, you know, a little uh, reputation for coming out a little, little, little bit of burn. Absolutely. I want to let them, you know, sit for a week or two before they're, they're you know, mellow and ready to drink. Uh, you know, but I know you and, and you know, as well as a lot of other brewers have been trying to focus on how you can tame some of that in order to make that that beer uh, more palatable, you know, straight out of the gate uh, without, you know, causing uh, the intensity and the, uh, you know, the positive aspects of that flavor to decline. So talk to me a little bit about, you know, how you all are managing around that. Yeah, I mean, I think we really would see um, that polyphenol burn creep up once we were hitting around, you know, four and a half to five pounds per barrel uh, total hop load. Um you know, a pretty typical scheme for us would be something around one pound per barrel in the whirlpool, and then depending on what we were aiming for in the you know the finished beer, anywhere from two to six you know plus pounds in in the dry hop. I don't think we've gone much more than six or seven pounds per barrel in in the dry hop at this point. 
Um, I know some friends of mine definitely have, <laughs> and uh, um, you know, you, you get some interesting results when you start going that high. Right. But um, yeah, it was around that that you know four and a half to five pound per barrel total load that we um, we started seeing it. Um, and uh, you know, I, I would absolutely be lying if I didn't say that the uh, the Rolex uh, didn't make it a little worse at first. <laughs> um, you know, we got a lot of efficiency gains and uh, right, right. A, a fair amount of polyphenol burn off of it initially. Um, so did, did that that Rolex also speed your process up? I mean, I imagine that it's if it's shearing and, and recirculating that it's uh, doing a you know much more effective job of intermixing hops with the beer. Oh yeah, I mean, you know, dry hopping code name used to be a two day process. Um, it was you know dump the hops in through a port on the top, wait a day for them or half of the hops, um, wait a day for them to settle through the beer and then dump the, you know, the second half, the second day. Um, now that's a two hour process, right? So it's, you know, it shears the hops, circulates them throughout the beer. Uh, the thing is we're not getting two full days back because of the fact that we need to let the beer rest a little bit longer right, because right. of that shearing process. Um, I, I find that the overall quality of the beer is, is better with the Rolex, but we've definitely had to take some, you know, some changes to our process to, you know, make things uh, not quite so burny these days. So, yeah. Um, so among the things that we've done um, for our single IPAs, typically it is a, um, you know, single dry hop. Um, you know, the code name, for instance, I'll just use that as, as kind of the canonical example here. Um, we will wait till about two days after after terminal. Uh, we will drop yeast, you know, harvest if we're going to repitch or just dump it if if we're done, and then um, uh, dry hop with the the Rolex, and we'll typically go um, three to four days from dry hop before we cold crash the tank for transfer to um, you know to package. Um, that's uh, the total dry hop load on Codename is around uh, two to two and a quarter pounds per barrel um, if you translate it into T ninety. Um, Obviously, we're working with cryo for a lot of our hops at this point, so uh, the the calculation isn't right, isn't right. exactly that. But uh, any of the hop load totals that I'm talking about are, are translated into <laughs> T90 mentally for me. Okay. So, okay. Um, and then uh, but that's for, a that's a pretty quick turnaround on some of these. I mean, there are yeah. Um, I, you know, we we find that you know by um, by dumping the yeast first. Um, yeah. So you're not a biotransformation person. We are in some cases. Okay. Uh, Codename specifically isn't. Okay. Um, we definitely do some fermentation hopping on other beers, but we find that uh, by dumping the yeast first and then um, dry hopping after it's you know a terminal and diacetyl is cleaned up, um, that we are able to avoid a lot of that burn. Um, and you know, in cases where we are dry hopping under active fermentation, um, we definitely do that when uh, the hop load goes over about three and a half pounds per barrel. We'll split the dry hop into a fermentation hop and a dry hop. Um, so it'll go, uh, the fermentation hop will go in one day after high croissant. Um, the, the, what we find is if we push all of that back to when we would normally dry hop, that's when we see a lot of that polyphenol burn. Um, so we'll dry hop one day after high croissant, um, at when it reaches terminal, dump the yeast and, um, then dry hop again. Um, when we leave significant yeast matter in the beer that the, the um, I think some of the polyphenols really attach to the to the yeast and are responsible for a lot of that burn. You know, if you if you've ever tasted yeast at the you know the end of a ferment IPA fermentation, the yeast itself tastes bitter, right? Yeah. And then if you have you know hot like raw hot matter attached to that as well, you're going to get that burn. Well, it would also seem to be like antithetical to the entire idea of adding that many hops because you know if, if those polyphenols bond to that yeast, the yeast will drop out. Like all yeast will settle out of a beer. Yeah. You know, it just 
that's just what yeast does. It's too large to stay in solution. And so uh, it'll drag that hops character that you've now spent so much money in hops to put into that beer and just take it right down to the bottom of, the, of that package. Um, yeah, that absolutely. Beer. So not necessarily what you're going for there. No, but we do find that uh, the, the fermentation hopping um, does have some of those biotransformative effects. I, I am not going to pretend that I know the specific science yeah, behind yeah. that. That's that's not my background. But um, you know, you, it is a it is qualitatively a different hop character. Um, you know, if we if we took the exact same hop load and added it um, in it, during high, you know, one day after high croissant versus you know two days after terminal. Um, even before anything drops out, the the you know the the ester profile and the biotransformative effects of the yeast are just cause it to taste different. Yeah, um, and you know so we're kind of relying on that for some of the more heavily hopped beers to create you know like layers of hop complexity. Right, it's it's not just a um, you know straight citra bomb or you know something along those lines. What you know from from a sensory perspective, um, what do you how would you articulate or describe some of the the differences in that flavor? Man, that's a. That I, is, I love this yeah. question because every engineer brewer that I talk to has the hardest time trying to articulate this. And um, yeah, well, <laughs> absolutely, an engineer brewer. Uh, my sure. background is in software engineering, yeah, so yeah. Um, yeah, it's 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 difficult to articulate. It is. Um, um, I, I would say it is, uh, it, for lack of a better word, I would say the the hop character is a little bit rounder and maybe covers a broader spectrum of flavors after it's been through fermentation. Whereas I feel like, um, you know, with our, our beers that we just dry hop after terminal, it's more of a pure expression of what the actual hop flavor is, hop mm-hmm. flavors and aromas. It's like, oh, that is, um, you know, so one thing that we do is all of our year-round beers, um, year-round hoppy beers are differentiated in terms of the, the core hop profile. So codename is, is primarily Citra and Simcoe. Um, Noob is exclusively Mosaic and Eldorado and uh, Juice Hunter is primarily um, Galaxy and Amarillo with some Simcoe in there as well. Um, so you know, we're, we're really trying to differentiate the hot profile for, between each one. And the difference between those three beers is Juice Hunter gets a fermentation hop. And I, I find the hop character to be, you know, extremely pronounced, but a little bit less specific, like varietal specific. Um, there's definitely a strong Galaxy component to it because that, that beer is intended to highlight Galaxy. But um, when I taste Codename, I taste Citra and Simcoe. And when I taste uh, Noob, I taste Mosaic and Eldorado. Um, that, that's kind of the way I would describe it is, is, is the post-terminal dry hop is more of a pure expression of a, a specific hop characteristic and less kind of generically fruity. Okay. So that that's what sense. I get personally. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's tastes like the hop and those characters in the hop and not just the flavors that that hop produces. Yeah, yeah, I, I, it, 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 it's more easily identified as a specific variety. Is I guess the way, the probably the easiest way for me to describe it. Right? Yeah. It's, it's that is Citra, that is not Citra and a whole mess of esters. Not mess in a bad way, but you know. Sure. Um, sure. Yeah. So. So by dropping the yeast before you uh, uh, before you dry hop or uh, dropping yeast before you add your dry hops, um, you know, are you mitigating some of the you know, potential problem from hops creep that uh, you know that's hitting other folks, or do you see some you know diastole production uh, you know through that dry hopping? Um, yeah, interesting question. I was just talking with our production manager today uh, about this question. Um, we see uh, terminal gravity creep in noob significantly more than in 
um, Codename or a Juice Hunter. Interesting. Um, the interesting thing about that is is Codename. And that's is, the smallest beer of all three. It is. And Codename, and, it's not like a, it's a yeast strain thing either because Codename and Noob share a yeast. Mm-hmm. So Codename and Noob are Conan, uh, you know, traditional heady topper yeast also used by Hill Farmstead. At least it was at one point. I don't know if that's still what they're using. Um, whereas Juice Hunter is uh, LA3, right? Yep. So it's, well, it's actually LA2 that we get from Inland Island, but it's the same strain. Right? Yeah. And um, so it's not like Codename and Juice Hunter share a yeast and Noob is the odd man out there. Um, so the, or the variables we're exploring there is that, um, the, the grain bill for, for noob is different. Um, well, the grain bills for all three beers are different. Codename is Turo and wheat. Uh, noob is Vienna and rye and uh, juice hunter is pills and oats. Um, that's, there, there's maybe a couple extra malts here and there on some of those, but as far as right. the, uh, the core of the beers, you know, they're, they're differentiated that way. And um, so we're, we're beginning to believe that it actually might be um, hop variety dependent um, be, just because of the fact that uh, we, we see it, ex- yeah. the, the creep exclusively in that, that one beer. And we have not necessarily seen it in, in some other like rotating beers that we've produced with those same malts. Right. So yeah. um, there might be a CBC proposal for next year coming out of this. We don't know yet. Um, it, it's still something that we're exploring. Um, our production right. manager and lab tech have been looking at it pretty extensively. Um, but yeah, we have definitely seen some I mean, terminal. It sounds like, yeah, the, you know, as you mentioned, I mean, if you're talking about Vienna and Rye malt, there's also, you know, a potential for, for some difference there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but like I said, I think we've, we've used Vienna and Rye oh. in uh, rotating beers that we haven't seen, haven't that, seen that, that creep in. So, um, I don't know. We we're, we're not a hundred percent sure where it, where it is, but it's it's pretty consistently that one beer. Yeah. Um, do you, do you know which hop you think it might be? Um, yeah. No. I mean, it's we use Mosaic fairly extensively. Yeah. Um, and we use Eldorado almost exclusively in that beer. There's not a lot of beers that we use Eldorado right. in. Um, hmm. My my guess might be Eldorado, but yeah. Non um, non scientific. Completely. Completely anecdotal. On, yes. Completely yeah. anecdotal. Not scientific. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think we're going to do some of the science to try to figure that out, sure, but sure. Um, we, we're not there yet. I know, you know, uh, uh, Jason Perkins and Tom Shellhammer, when they did their experiments, I mean, they, they were using Cascade in, uh, you know, re-dry hopping finished cores. And and even that, you know, caused, uh, um, you know, re-fermentation uh, even on the finished beer. And so uh, it certainly could be more than one hop variety, but there may be some that are more and or less sensitive than yeah. others when it yeah, comes yeah, to that. Yeah, I'm not saying necessarily oh, specifically yeah. Alorado, but yeah, 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 no. um, that seems to be in our process and, you know, the ingredients that we commonly use, one of the things that uh, is different about right. that beer specifically. So It's so interesting. This, I mean, you know, this kind of conversation and your experience and this kind of shared oral experience between brewers becomes the way that everyone learns, you know, I mean, this, this is, there's not a, a textbook that says this is how to do it. And this is what's going to, you know, be, uh, happen when you do this, because I mean, you know, like we said, frankly, before, you know, we're about four years into this whole style of doing this. Um, it is way early days and, uh, and everybody is, is learning along, um, you know, and so you're, you contribute knowledge, you share knowledge and you take knowledge from those that have gone through it. And it's, it's kind of a, an interesting process where, where craft beer is right now. Yeah, absolutely. It's been, um, we, we've learned a ton about the, uh, you know, just the, the entire process of making these beers. Um, you know, as for, you know, back to Hopburn, um, we, there's definitely some variety dependence there, right? Uh, you know, some of the, the higher oil content hops are, um, you know, definitely more prone to it. We, we were, um, 
we've seen a lot of, of Galaxy beers that we've produced, um, you know, that, which is Galaxy is both high alpha and high oil in yeah. most cases. Um, we tend to notice hot burn being more prominent in beers that fit, that feature Galaxy. And, um, you know, that's so that might be a beer that we would be or might be a hop that we would be inclined to you know, move a significant portion of the, you know, the, the dry hop, the, the galaxy portion of the dry hop into the fermentation hop. Right. Mm. So, um, you know, without pulling up a brew sheet, I would guess that of the galaxy portion of the dry hop in juice hunter, probably two thirds of it goes in as a fermentation hop to, to help mitigate hot burn. Um, and you know, we've definitely seen some other varieties that, that fit the same thing. Um, Citra, same way, you know, uh, high alpha, high oil, um, you know, it, that tends to be the combination that, 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 you know, tends to bring out a hot burn in the, the excessive dry hopping rates. So. Interesting. Well, um, let's talk one of the, the first beer that we were drinking while we were talking was a quad dry hop. Double. double. Oh, that one's double. That's okay. the double. That's yeah. Nelson Sovin <laughs> double dry hop codename Superfan. You have released a quad dry hopped Superfan as well. Yeah. Um, you know, it's such an interesting thing for me to look at the way the brewing industry uses language. Um, and there really isn't a standard for what double dry hop means, other than if you put double dry hop on a beer label, then people want to buy it because it sounds better. Yeah. Um, you know, for you all, how do you define the difference between something like double dry hopped, triple dry hopped, or quadruple dry hopped, sure. for that matter? Yeah, um, you absolutely. Know, some breweries may define it as adding an additional hot you know, uh, round of dry hopping. Others will simply, you know, view it as we added twice as much hops to the dry hop, and now it's double dry hopped. You know, how, for you all, how do you find some meaning in the language that we use, or does it have any meaning in connection to, to the language, or is, or all of these terms simply just marketing? Yeah. Um, so we actually had a very, very similar conversation to this with uh, one of your partners, John Hall. Okay. On his other podcast. Oh uh, gosh. His, with Skillless Beer with with. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that episode was lost forever. And um, Augie likes to, to rail against the DDH, uh, you know, moniker for beers. And uh, we explained our philosophy to him um, last year, uh, Big Beers 2018, when we did his podcast. And um, he he lost the recording, so it never made it to air. So he calls it the best episode he's ever made that never saw the light of day. So um, when we say double dry hopped or quadruple dry hopped, we literally mean double the quantity or quadruple the quantity. Um, the first time we released released QDH Superfan, um, the labels actually said DDH Superfan, um, because and that's what it was supposed to be. <laughs> right, right. Uh, it was a math error by one of our brewers. He, you, guys, um, you, keep, you guys keep making a lot of math errors here. I'm sensing <laughs> it was a, a different theme. <laughs> different brewer this time, and um, he copied. Uh, oh, I think it was the dry hopping for a 60 barrel batch instead of a 30 barrel batch, yeah, yeah. and then doubled it, and um, so we ended up quadruple dry hopped. Um, and uh, so, yeah, when we, when we say DDH or QDH, we literally mean that. So the beer that we were drinking prior to this was was Nelson Sovin dry, uh, double dry hopped, codenamed Superfan. We took the the standard quantity of of dry hops that we would put into Superfan, Superfan, and matched that with Nelson Sovin. Um, that's I so totally just a mathematical in, equation. Then, in our opinion, yeah, yes. Yeah. Um, when we say double dry hopped, we literally mean double dry hopped. I don't think there's any wrong or right answer on this, and uh, you know, I honestly, don't. I mean, I, why would anyone <laughs> care and make some like yeah. impassioned argument against using a term like you know double dry hopped? I think 
you know, it comes back to my same my same view on beer styles, and I, you know, beer styles are, are simply marketing in themselves. You know, all these ways are a way to convey something to a consumer and, and suggest some meaning uh, in a way that connects them with something that they're familiar with. And so, you know, double dry hop suggests that this one's even hoppier, whether whatever hoppy means, you know, whether that's bitter or whether that's uh, you know more fruit forward flavor from the hops. Uh, if it conveys some idea that connects with a consumer and, and suggests to them that they may like this then it's done its job. You know, I mean, that's the way that we use language in order to sell beer. This is, you know, brewing is a business. And, uh, you know, um, you, the whole idea of a style is, hey, if you liked this one, you're probably also going to like this other thing that I make. I mean, that's why you have a beer style. Um, there's nothing written in stone. These are not handed down from God to Moses on stone tablets as to what a beer style should be or what the language should be around that kind of thing. So uh, I'm sorry, I'm soapboxing here. <laughs> totally get it. Yeah, we... Um when I said earlier that I, I didn't think we'd ever gone above, you know, six and a half or seven pounds per barrel, I, I was definitely wrong. QDH Superfan is about eight pounds per barrel. Um, and uh, the first time we brewed that beer, I was, you know, okay, yeah, that's a low yield. Um, whatever. We'll, we'll keep. And then I looked at the cost and I was like, that doesn't look right. Yeah. <laughs> Once I, uh, you know, started plugging in the numbers, realized it was, um, you know, double what it was supposed to be, which was double. And uh, yeah. So ever since then, we've actually released it as QDH. Um, appropriately labeled. So, so you know, as brewers, I mean, you know this better than anybody. You know, more is not always better. Um, how do you balance, uh, you know, the desire of a consumer to, you know, to get more and more and more intense and have some new, new, new story to, you know, to tell and and help sell this beer and this kind of culture of always new and always fresh and always innovative and exciting. How do you balance that against, you know, that kind of desire as a brewer to make something that is nuanced and expressive, um, simple and clear, uh, you know, but direct in the way that it communicates this idea of what you want to brew. I mean, that's, I think it's a common tension that brewers are, you know, face uh, repeatedly these days. Yeah. I mean, uh, like I said before, Codename Superfan has been essentially the same recipe since early 2016. Um, and you know, almost the same recipe since 2015. It is, um, you know, it's a beer that we were able to get onto the shelf. Um, we just raised the price this year, so it should be on most shelves at 11.99. Up until this year, it was 10.99. For a 12 pack, for or a six pack. Six pack yeah. of, of 12 ounce cans. Not, um, not 16 ounce cans. Not 16, yeah, I don't think we could do, quite do that. But, yeah. um, you know, the goal there is to make something that is, you know, relatively simple by by hazy IPA standards. It's, you know, it's, it's simple, it's expressive. Um, you get, you know, some nice yeast esters, uh, expressive profile from the various hops, but it is, you know, quaffable. Um, you can have more than one. It's not overwhelming. It's on the shelf at a reasonable price point. And it, it's still our best selling beer. Um, you know, we might have yeah. beers that, that outsell it on a very short lived basis. But if we were, tr- you know, to try to bring one of those in um, as a year round, uh, Juice Hunter is a great example of this. You know, it, it initially, um, you know, sold like crazy. And, it you know, it's still a constant solid product for us. But, um, you know, there's there's something to be said for that that slightly simpler, um, you know, slightly less overpowering, just, you know, chill beer that uh, that you can you know drink several of. And I think both Codename and Noob kind of fit that bill. And, you know, the way we satisfy the other half of the consumer base is by constantly releasing, you know, rotating stuff. We have our core beers. We have rotators that we do on a monthly basis. Sure, um, sure. Some of them hit distribution. Some of them are taproom only. And, um you know, that's that's kind of the uh, you know the way we satisfy it. So that has to be a challenge. We were uh, down in uh, Denver last week for our uh, brewery uh, accelerator event, and Chad uh, Jacobson of Crook and Stave was mentioning that uh, you know their hope when they launch a new brand is maybe two years. 
you know, that now the lifespan of, of any new brand that they launch is, is two years. And that is a weird, you know, for, for old school brewers, that's, that's a crazy heartbreaking kind of, uh, you know, realization to know that you're going to create a new beer, put a new brand down in the market. And if you get two years out of it, you're kind of lucky, you know, for, for you all, you seem to, you know, launch, stop, launch, stop, you know, kind of rotate in, rotate out, do it in, at a way that's maybe not quite as predictable for a consumer so that they can't, you know, necessarily just count on new things. And when they see new things, they want to buy new things because you don't know when that's going to be around again. How do you, you know, do you have, do you have a strategy around how that now we're, we're talking about selling beer, which wasn't exactly the, <laughs> the focus, but I'm, I'm curious about this. Like how much does releasing a quad dry hopped codename Superfan also turn around and sell more codename Superfan when quad dry hopped isn't around because you created a point of interest and it reminded, uh, you know, consumer that they didn't, they enjoy that beer. And, uh, and then, you know, there's a hazy IPA that they can drink larger amounts of because it's not quite as sweet. And, uh, you know, or, you know, or as hot Bernie or as, you know, right, as, as right. overpowering. I mean, it's I one of the reasons yeah. why I'm attracted to it and, and drink a <laughs> significant amount of it. Thank you. Yeah. Um, no, absolutely. I think that, um, you know, we use our rotators and our taproom beers as, you know, I think the taproom beers are largely a way to experiment with new ingredients and processes that um, we are potentially looking to incorporate into other beers. Um, you know, we, we use frequently lots of, you know, new or experimental hops or, um, incorporating, you know, uh, fruits, um, you know, different dry hopping techniques, different fermentation techniques. And then the things that make it into distribution on a rotating basis are, you know, maybe a little bit more proven in terms of the things that, you know, the, sure, the ingredients sure. and processes that are going into them. And then, you know, then we have our staples of things that are, you know, uh, you know, proven, tested and, you know, are exactly what we're looking to do every single time. Um, I think that that's, you know, that is a strategy that has worked reasonably well for us. Um, and we've continued to grow every year. We started out very, very small, you know, 10 barrel taproom only brewery, uh, produced 500 barrels in our first year. We did, uh, um, that was 20 first full year was 2014. We opened in late 2013. Um, so between then and, you know, last year, 2018, we did a little over 7,000 barrels. Um, you know, it's been, uh, not, I wouldn't say explosive growth, but it has been, uh, you know, very, very strong, consistent growth um, by, you know, kind of pursuing that. Yeah. Even before we started doing the hazy beers, it was, you know, a constant rotation of things through the tap room. And what you would see on the shelves at the stores was, you know, was pretty consistent. Um, but, um, you know, since we've adopted this and, and scaled our capacity, it's allowed to branch out even more in terms of the variety. I think, you know, consumers enjoy the new thing, but they enjoy having, you know, old reliable as well, which in our case, old reliable is, is codename and noob. Um, you know, the, the, you know, some of the things that we're exploring as far as future ways to do this, um, I think in April we are releasing the, the first pilot of a new IPA that'll be exclusively available in our home market. So we are in two States right now, Colorado and Arizona, and we ship some, some beer to Tavur, uh, online retailer. Yep. Um, we are going to be releasing a beer in April. That will be a year-round beer for us next year um, that will use 100% Colorado malts and a significant portion of, of Colorado hops, not exclusively Colorado, because we want to incorporate a few things that we find super interesting. And, um, you know, Colorado propagated yeast from Inland Island. So um, we don't have a name on that one yet, but it'll be our, our taproom can release for, for April. And, you know, it's um, Colorado has been really good to us. We want to, you know, try to... Uh, provide some things to the local market that just aren't available everywhere, right? Um, and you know, people really enjoy knowing where their, um, you know, their, their products came from. You know, the farm to table movement, the you know, the eat local, drink local movements. 
Um, that's you know something that we definitely believe in. It's very hard to do on a large, large scale. So right, this is not right. something that we could you know uh, make a uh, huge amount of at a reasonable price. But um, it's something that we're looking to do on a pretty consistent basis. Um, you know, starting in in uh, 2020, um, it throughout our entire home market. This year, we'll probably pilot it a few times through the tap room. But um, I think that's you know um, embr- finding areas like that to right. you know to embrace um, just. I think, you know, and I've, I've watched other brewers have these conversations online about that, you know, some, you know, just, you know, up in arms over this kind of focus on local and it should be about best. Um, you know, I think I think this argument about local is an important one only in a context of judging great versus great sure. and, and local. If it's a mediocre local product, doesn't, I mean, nobody's going to drink it. You know, you can sell it once and if somebody comes back to it and they're, they're not going to want to buy it again if they didn't have a great experience with it. And so, um, you know, grant, if it's a great tasting beer that people enjoy drinking and it's local, then local becomes that element, you know, that, that pushes it over the top in terms of their purchasing decision. But they, you have to be talking about, you know, apples to apples there with yeah, you know, similar quality of product. Yeah, I mean, so yeah, we'll be working on that beer with um, Troubadour Maltings out of Fort oh, Collins. Yeah, yeah, fun. We've used a lot of their malts in in various other beers that we've done, yeah. and so we're you know we're kind of partnering with them specifically <laughs> to, um, yeah, their logo will be on the beer. Um, you know, we're kind of co-branding it slightly yeah, with yeah. them to you know to really let people know that this is you know this is Colorado grown product right, right. right that that goes into it. And that same process is happening kind of, you know, with other breweries and other, you know, craft monsters all across the country. It's Absolutely. a fantastic thing to watch that, uh, you know, that, that this process of, you know, the growth of craft beer, um, specifically of craft beer, you know, has led to the explosion of small providers, whether it's hops farms, you know, in each of those states, whether it's, you know, small artisanal maltsters in, in each of the states. And now I think, you know, we're at like 25, 26 craft maltsters across the country. I mean, it's, it's just kind of fascinating to see how that has exploded from this point where, um, you know, they didn't exist, uh, you know, a few years ago there, because there wasn't a market for it. Yeah. Um, you, you talked about ingredients and processes with your taproom beers. Um, we've got a few more minutes left. I would love to talk about some of the uh, experimentation that you're doing there and some of the things that are getting you excited, uh, whether those are new ingredients, combinations of ingredients, uh, or ways that you are incorporating some of those ingredients into your beer. So uh, so what's what's fresh and what's new and what's getting you excited? Well, yeah, like I said, uh, the, you know, the working with Troubadour has been great. Um, we've used the, their malts in, in a bunch of different things. Um, you know, the, one of the things that is um, one of the things that is, you know, super overlooked in uh, this style of beer is the contribution that malt makes. Right. And mm-hmm. when I say this style of beer, I'm talking about hazy IPA. Sure. Sure. We, we produce tons of beer that's not hazy yeah, IPA yeah, that's yeah, available yeah. in the tap room. But uh, for the most part, if you're seeing something in distribution from us, it's 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 going to be a, a, a hazy IPA or a sour. But um, let's talk about that. That's a great subject. You know, you you mentioned you have using Pilsner malt and uh, Juice Hunter, and you're you know you're using different kinds of bases in uh, in each one of your uh, you know Pale Ale and Codename. Yeah. Um, why make those different malt choices in each of those, and what do you think that those you know from for you how do those different malts impact uh, the way that those flavors get expressed? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, the smallest of those beers has the richest base malt, right? So Noob is the smallest of the three yeah. beers. Uh, Vienna is a is a much richer malt than, you know, Turo or Pilsner. And the biggest of the beers has probably the, you know, the least impactful base malt in terms of, you know, sweetness and gravity contribution. Um, or not gravity contribution, um, sweetness and, uh, like, color contribution. Um, but, you know, Pilsner malt still has a, um, you know, a, a, a distinctive 
malt character to it, especially when, when combined with the oats. Um, I, I think, you know, one thing that we try to do is, you know, scale the richness of the base malt along with the, uh, you know, the size of the beer. Um, we've definitely produced invertly inverse. Yeah. So like when we, um, we, so you're going to get real geeky here. Noob is a, um, Noob is a Conan beer, right? So we use Conan when we're looking for something that's a little bit lighter, a little bit more quaffable, um, whereas LA three tends to leave the beer a little bit thicker, a little bit sweeter. And, uh, they both have their place. We use LA three pretty extensively. I'm not, I'm not hating on one or the other. They just achieve different things. Um, we produced, uh, you know, like a double IPA, well, high end, a single IPA, low end, a double IPA version of noob, um, with the exact same ratio of base malt and, um, London ale. And it was a delicious beer, but it was just rich and thick and filling. Whereas the exact exact same combination of malt with Conan produced a beer that has like a nice, um, you know, bready malt character without being thick and cloying and, and sweet. Um, so that's kind of part of the philosophy for us is, you know, as we go up in gravity, um, we're, we're, you know, the beers are going to finish higher. They're naturally going to be a little bit sweeter, especially if we're using London ale. So we try to dial back some of the rich malt contributions as we go up in gravity to, you know, to help compensate for that. Um, I think that's, you know, then you start to bring in other, you know, your adjunct grains, your wheat, your rye, your, your oats. Um, you know, we, um, and, and we, those all impart different things depending on what we're looking to accomplish in a specific beer. Um, and then you start bringing in like specialty roasts, like Vienna is a specialty roast of, um, you know, of a base malt. Um, you know, one malt that we really like working with is the blue serenade from, um, from Troubadour. Mm-hmm. Um, we've incorporated that it's, it's kind of analogous to a Vienna and, you know, even some bigger beers, if we use it in a small proportion, it adds just a little bit of a malt richness to the beer that we wouldn't necessarily get from, you know, the, the straight base malt. Um, in this style of beer, we, we really try to stay away from, um, from crystal malts for the most part. Yeah. Uh, we might use like a Viram and Carafoam, um, that definitely does get used in both Codename and Juice Hunter in a very small proportion. Just to lend a, um, uh, you know, we feel like it ends a let, lends a small amount of sweetness and uh, mouthfeel characteristic, but it's it's not a, a prominent component of the beer. Um, and you do that in order to avoid some of the oxidative characteristics that some yeah. of those uh, more yeah crystal malts are yeah um, you know hoppy beers with crystal malt taste great when they're fresh and as that that malt oxidizes, I, I think it turns into just a just a mess. Um, our like I said, our original flagship was a red IPA called Eric the Red that, um, you know, on draft in the tap room was excellent in cans was very good. But I think that the, uh, you know, the freshest level in cans, um, you know, the, the cans are more susceptible to oxidation than, you know, than, than kegs just by virtue of being um, volume, yeah, you know, yeah. volume to surface area and, and all of that. And, you know, not being counter pressure filled um, like a keg. Right. right. So, um, you know, I, I, people like beers that are, you know, that are, are, um, you know, I, I feel like Eric the Red was, uh, or the Red IPA in general was was almost a in in some ways a predecessor to the uh, the New England IPA thing. It's it's a balanced beer with a little bit of malt character and uh, you know pretty significant hop hop backbone to you know to to complement that. And I think the you know the rounder, softer mouthfeel and lower bitterness of the the New England IPA satisfies some of the th- same things, but right. is applicable to a broader audience, right? Um, the, the interesting thing is if you cut the crystal malt out of Eric, the red and, um, you know, replace that with oats, um, you actually have a pretty bitch in new England IPA recipe. Um, and we cut the bittering hop. So you cut the bittering hop and replace the crystal malt with oats and change the yeast from a West coast yeast to, um, 
a London ale or a, yeah. um, a Conan. It's it, it, the recipe was almost identical. And we actually produce a beer now called Eric's ex-wife, which, um, the joke is, you know, she got all the hops in the divorce cause it's, uh. <laughs> it's effectively the same <laughs> recipe. Um, Eric the Red is actually named after a friend of mine. Uh, he's not divorced. He's happily married. Just had a second kid. Love you, Eric. But, um, the, uh, yeah, no, it's, it, the, the beers we were producing before we were producing New England IPAs followed a lot of the same hopping schemes where it was, you know, small bittering edition, big, big whirlpool and even bigger dry hop. Um, and, you know, I, I think that evolution from the from the hoppy red to New England IPA was kind of a natural progression for us, um, just based on the recipes we were already formulating. Are there any other like flavor impacts? You mentioned richness, so you know of that kind of malt base, um, you know, but are there uh, are there specific flavor impacts uh, outside of? you know, of just how those contribute to that kind of sweetness and that, that mouthfeel. Yeah. Um, you know, they're the other, the only other crystal malt that we will really use in any significant, um, I won't even say it's a significant portion. It might be one and a half percent, maybe 2% at the highest is, uh, is honey malt. I think it has, um, you know, just that tiny bit of sweetness to, to, you know, it's honey malt, uh, for those that don't know, it's a relatively low, um, roast crystal malt produced mm-hmm. by uh, gambrinus malting um it is a um just a you know that little bit of sweetness to accentuate some of the uh, the mouthfeel characteristics and you know there um i think there's the beer we're drinking now actually has an equivalent um you know it's not honey malt or anything crystal it's a but it's a fairly rich base malt that provides like a you know a sweetness and a, a, a textural component that helps balance out a lot of the hop characteristics so um, the beer we're actually drinking is called Sip the Magic Dragon. It's a Vermont-inspired double IPA. So, um, but yeah, it's you know we're we're looking you know the the textural component and you know a little bit of sweetness to to balance the hop character is is what we're looking for in in malts and we're we're looking for everything to be pretty balanced. So why is this called a Vermont-inspired double IPA? What's different between a New England style and a Vermont style? I mean, Vermont style is, you know, we consider it a sub style of, of New England style, right? Okay. So the original, you know, the old school heady topper, uh, double sunshine, um, uh, you know, some of the Hill farmstead, double IPAs, um, th- that kind of characteristic style of beer compared with the more modern, uh, New England style doubles was, you know, significantly more bitter. Um, you know, it's this, probably calculates at, you know, 80 or 90 IBU doesn't quite drink like that, but, um, and is, you know, not necessarily quite as thick and rich as you might see out of like a, um, I don't know, like a trillium or treehouse type, you know, the, the more, I think that's what most people associate these days with, you know, the, the, the new England style, but realistically it was, it was heady topper kicked the whole thing off. Sure. Sure. And you know, if you, if you drink heady topper now, it almost, compared to those beers, feels like a West Coast IPA. You drink it next to a Pliny, obviously, it's a very different, sure, uh, sure. you know, very different drinking experience. So that was kind of the goal of this beer is, um, you know, a little bit more bitter, um, using a combination of old school and new school hops. You know, so there's there's some Columbus in here. There's some um, there's some Chinook, along with some Citra and, you know, a, a couple other newer school things, um, which I think is, you know, if you were to uh, drink Heady Topper, I think you would get a lot of the same characteristics in terms of that, um, you know, some of the piney, you know, old school hops mixed with some of the fruitier new school. Yeah. Um, let's go back to that question I was talking about before. Some of the, you know, you don't just make hoppy beers. You do make other beers. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know, and, and uh, uh, you know, let's talk about some of the other ingredients and some of the other processes, uh, you know, with some of those other beers that uh, 
that are particularly exciting to you right now? Yeah, so we are actually going to be releasing our first um, canned lager into distribution. Uh-oh. So, You're jumping on that bandwagon. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't call it a bandwagon necessarily, but... Uh. Well, it's kind of a you know, <laughs> several hundred-year-old bandwagon at sure, this point. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. Um, it's it, only the most sold style of beer and most consumed style of beer in the, in the world. But. True. Yeah, I, I guess there is that. Um, yeah, I we'll, just say the craft bandwagon. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so that, that'll actually be coming out in May. Um, it, it's, uh, unfiltered Keller pills, um, that is, uh, you know, uses a, a pretty traditional, um, you know, German, uh, lager yeast, you know, six plus week, uh, fermentation and lagering time, um, all German, or all European hops, uh, Czech saws, not, which is obviously not German. And then, um, uh, whole melon and hollow blanc from Germany. Um, I think that's a, you know, it's a really fun and interesting beer. We actually released it through the tap room, um, last year. Um, it was, you know, a reasonable seller for us through the tap room, but, um, you know, a lot of the times people are coming to the tap room for the, you know, the new big juicy double. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, putting that beer on the shelf at, you know, nine ninety nine, ten ninety nine 10 is, uh, a completely different story. I think it's a, a really fun and interesting beer. Um, that's, you know, like I said, our first foray into distributed lager. We've definitely produced several at the tap room. Yeah. I think we have three or four on at the moment. Um, we do uh, quite a few kettle sours um, into distribution. Not so much barrel-aged sour into distribution. We definitely do those through the tap room, but um, we don't have the space or um, the patience. No, <laughs> we have the patience, uh, just not the space to, uh, to deal with any large-scale production of barrel-aged sour. We have a fooder at the tap room that we release um, you know, Solera, uh, fooder blends out of from time to time. Um, next kettle sour releasing into distribution is actually a, uh, smoothie style raspberry sour, um, you know, lactose, vanilla, and a shit ton of raspberry. So <laughs> <laughs> let's, I want to talk to you about that kettle sour process, but, uh, but first I want to thank the uh, sponsors that made this episode possible. GND chillers leads the way on custom innovative solutions. Hopsteiner is one of the foremost international growing, breeding, trading, and processing firms in the world. Let BSG supply you with an unparalleled and diverse selection of ingredients. And join your peers April 8th through 11th in Denver for the Craft Brewers Conference and Brew Expo America. Uh, Also, if you enjoy this podcast, we've recently launched an all-new subscription that bundles videos, courses, magazines, exclusive articles, and soon exclusive podcasts under the Craft Beer and Brewing All-Access subscription. As a special offer for our podcast listeners, we're offering 20% off this new subscription when you visit beerandbrewing.com slash pod. Again, visit beerandbrewing.com. P-O-D today to get all your all access subscription and enjoy everything we publish. Um, kettle souring. You've got a 30 barrel two vessel system here. Yep. Uh, how, how do you, uh, maintain a production environment and still make kettle soured beers in this kind of, uh, you know, uh, without tying up your brew house? Yeah. I mean, we're not quite at a point yet where we are brewing, you know, 24 seven, right? So we're, okay. we're brewing three to four days a week typically. So taking, oh, okay. you know, taking 24 hours to kettle sour something is, um, you know, not the, not the end of the world from a production, uh, you know, standpoint, I think, uh, as we get a little bit busier, it'll get trickier to manage. Um, we've done some things in the past, uh, you know, when we were brewing out of the tap room, um, with, you know, with only two 20 barrel fermenters and a 20 barrel bright, uh, we got a little creative there in terms of uh, the ways we achieved, you know, um, that process without tying up the brew house. But um, 
for now, it's are it, you it's sealing not the end a kettle? Are you uh, you know uh, while you uh, you know uh, pitch lacto? Are you uh, just laying a CO two blanket down? CO two, yeah, okay. con- continuous bubbling of CO two. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, we you know, we find that just the continuous bubbling is is enough to you know to ward off just about anything. Um, you know, no butyric, no, you know, or, or is all of that just a, you know, an old wives tale and, uh, no, we've definitely completely unnecessary because I have heard from brewers that say the same. Uh, we've heard that I, I firmly believe that, um, if nothing else, creating a positive pressure environment inside of the, the kettle, um, we've definitely done batches where we didn't do this and had fine results. Um, I think creative creating a positive pressure environment inside the kettle uh, lessens the the possibility of of anything coming in. Um, so we had a kettle sour we were doing at the tap room once that um, we think we picked up. Uh, it was like uh, cottonwood season, and uh, we think we picked up a cottonwood or two down the stack, <laughs> and um, like down the you yeah, know, yeah down the, the yeah. down the uh, the ventilation that you know the steam would evaporate out of. Um, that's what I mean by stack, and. Um, the it, it was we we think it was a um, strain of wild yeast that really liked uh, heat. We came in the next day and the kettle was like um, it was croisoning um, <laughs> out the manway onto the floor, and the entire room smelled oh, like no. Parmesan cheese. <laughs> um, <laughs> it smelled like Parmesan cheese for about four days after that. So. Um, so yeah, creating that positive pressure environment, yeah, I think, yeah. is a you know a good way to keep unwanted microbes from. It's not going to be a perfect solution, but it is a you know just one more precaution you can take to to you prevent put a that screen yeah. over the top of that stack now. To uh... um, so when we're doing kettle souring <laughs> at the tap room, we yeah we bubble CO two and we also um, we have a beach ball that we inflate. Oh, we sanitize the beach ball method. Yeah. Okay, yeah, we inflate and sanitize a beach ball, shove it up in the stack, yeah. and then put a pink flamingo over the burner so we don't start the burner until we remove the beach ball. It's a good <laughs> mnemonic device, yeah. uh, you know, to remember that. Yeah, so uh, you know, the creating creating that positive pressure environment, I think, right. is important. We've when we haven't done that, we have the only negative um, consequence we've ever had was, like I said, the uh, you know the the croisoning uh, out of the kettle. But it, um, you know, we you hear of you know isovaleric and butyric and um, you know all those kinds of things that that can happen without that. I think that's. Uh, in a lot of cases, more a function of pH than necessarily than, than the mm-hmm. CO2 or oxygen. Uh, but again, it's, you know, better safe than sorry, in our opinion. Um, if, you know, if there's any truth to the oxygen, um, you know, creating isovaleric or butyric flavors, um, great. Let's, let's use the CO2. Right. And on top of that, a positive pressure environment to keep things out. All right. Well, uh, that sounds like a great place to, uh, to call this a wrap. Uh, thanks. Ryan and Kristen. Thanks, Jamie. <laughs> Thank you. Sorry we didn't let you get a word in edgewise, Kristen. <laughs> oh, no worries. <laughs> uh, from Odd 13. If people want to learn more about Odd 13, where do they find more out about you? Yeah, so odd13brewing.com. That's odd13brewing.com um, is our website. And then all of the social medias, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, we are odd13brewing. Cool. We'll be back next week with another episode of the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. And uh, we are looking forward to a hefty slate of CBC guests out here in Colorado uh, uh, and recording a few uh, with some of our friends from around the country as they're in town here in Denver. Uh, Ryan and Kristen, thank you uh, for joining me on the podcast. Absolutely. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.